tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, all. Between 11 and 12 this evening, an outsider tale with Gerard Hindmarsh that has escaped the archives. The Worthington scandal, something like a Brian Tamaki, Destiny Churchy sort of thing of the 1890s, perhaps even more scandalous. But after the break, uh, in-depth and personal with Don McGlashan. His songbook, a big fat New Zealand tour. You can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's a direct link to get tickets. It's not for a month or so, but um, you want to get in early because he's universally popular in New Zealand. We'll be discussing all sorts of stuff, including, I think, the first time I ever met him. I remember seeing the Blams on many occasions. And, oh, God, sort of one of many misdemeanors. I think that one of the first times I saw you, I spilt a whole big things beer what are they called jugs the I jugs think, yes. it was a jug i think i spilled the whole thing all over you do you recall that i'm not surprised no. oh, okay yeah. um, it's the kind of thing you do yeah Lots of fun to be had on the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. I encourage you to go have a look. It's a neat little community. And uh, don't forget the podcasts are available hour by hour every weekend. Uh, eight till midnight and eight till midnight on a Sunday night as well. Next up, Don McGlashan. Living legend, national treasure. Still going strong. Ah. Weekend Variety Wireless. Don McGlashan the owner of one of the finest and most appreciated songbooks in New Zealand music. Testing your modesty, but I think that's right, Don. I really think it is, so thanks for coming in. Uh, it's very nice of you to say that, Graham, and it's great to be here. And you're embarking on a massive tour. That's th the excuse. That's how I've managed to get you on a leash and, and come in. It's uh, on the provisions of the Marketing Act, 1963. The leash is very comfortable, and uh, thank you for going to pet stores and choosing a nice, well-padded one. It's a massive tour that you're doing. You, know, you can find it on the websites, of course, but it's starting Thursday the 13th of September and going right through to Sunday, October the 21st. Queenstown, starting in Whangarei. Well, I thought, because we can have you in here just for a little bit, let's do a bit of the songbook Don McGlashan from Go To Woe, I suppose. Can you remember writing your first song? Yeah, yeah, I can, actually. I was, uh, we used to holiday on this island in the, in the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, we had an acre of land, and we had the batch that my dad built around the time I was born. And I think when I was six, I was up the hill. They used to, I was a bit of a dreamy kid and also was very clumsy. I would break things a lot. So the family were quite pleased when I would wander off and give them some respite. <clears throat> I'd wander off and sit up the hill and I sat up the hill for a while and then suddenly I wrote a song and I come running. All in your head. Down, all in my head. And I came screaming down, sort of singing it. I can't remember it now. To tell my mum and dad. And, uh, and they were, you know, quite... Was it like the claim, I, I've seen an angel? It was a little bit like it, yeah, it was a little bit like it, it sort of um, appeared to me. It was like a visitation of right. some sort. But it made me feel so good. I remember just feeling such a sense of achievement because, as I say, I was sort of a, I was a sort of clumsy kid who got a lot of things wrong was very asthmatic as well. So there was like a sense of impending crisis around me, um, like the clouds of dirt around pig pen uh -huh. in, the, in the Peanuts uh, cartoons. Yeah. And so for this really rather pure and wonderful thing to happen to me. I remember it 
I remember it being a real blast. Yeah. And uh, so I was very, always very slow. And by the time I got to high school, I was starting to write a few things. And then in my first band, which was largely a covers band when I was about 15, out of our whole set, I wrote like a couple of songs. Right. I was never really in a position to sort of put a band around my songs until much later. What was that band later. called? That was called Ethos. And what <laughs> covers did you do? Uh, the covers reflected the very wide range of musical interests in the band. The, the, Peter Warren was in the band. Yeah, um, the drummer. Wonderful, wonderful drummer. And uh, Scott Cahoon and a guy named Brian O'Donnell. So we did crowd-pleasing things like Bad Company, song, you know, songs by Bad Company. We did Bowie songs from the Aladdin Sane record, generally. Oh. Songs like Cracked Actor. I don't know why how 15-year-old boys could sing a song like Cracked Actor. But or, or the guitarist play it. That's yeah, I know. He's, he's a cool guitarist. He could well, do it. have to be. And because some of us were indulgent you know, musical weirdos, we did a few Yes covers as well. Not whole albums, but we did, you know, I think we covered Roundabout, which is the, the kind of bite-sized, entry-level Yes song. Uh. Um, I got no idea whether we played that... <laughs> In a in a in a, a recognisable form, but <laughs> it's the sort of music you could stop and gather yourselves together in order to carry on. Yeah. You need to. Mm. You need to. Luckily, luckily they have a key change and a tempo change every you yeah. know, minute or so. Okay, and then the Blams. I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, oh, pretty much. I was in a band called Cirrus with a man named Lee Herrick. That was like long pieces which changed time signature and tempo, quite descriptive, quite poetic lyrics. Mm. Uh, I was a keyboard player in that band, mm. um, and I'd been a keyboard player in Ethos and, and played some sax, I think. And then I joined the WizKids, and and that was playing guitar and some sax. There was this moment when people left the WizKids, leaving a core of three people, and there was a guitarist, a bass player, and me. And so obviously I needed to learn how to play the drums. I mm. could, I could, I had learnt percussion at university, and I'd learnt, I'd played some classical percussion, but I never actually sat down and joined it all up with it's, my feet and my hands. It's a bit of a different affair, isn't it? And um, oh, totally. that, that, that's impressive, that because you know, you're a fine drummer. I was writing, I was writing a lot, and luckily some of the writing had already been done because, um, because when Blam 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 started. You know, it, it formed out of the out of the ashes of the whiskers, which had formed out of the ashes of the plague. Okay. And and the plague um, had had sort of been put together by Richard von Sturmer, who is who is a really prolific writer, was then as well a prolific writer. And so there was an enormous pile of um, of lyrics sitting around. Song some songs had been uh, had had been finished. Some lyrics had been made into songs. Others were sort of drafts. You know, I was learning how to play the drums. I was learning how to sing and play at the same time. Mm. But luckily, we weren't learning how to write at the same time because okay. we had we had these ready-made songs. And after a little while, after we'd been going for about a year, I started writing more stuff for them. Did you ever go full anarchy symbol torn shirt screaming, like in 1977 or anything? <laughs> um, well, we were in that um, community. And I guess one of the cool things about that time was that suddenly music didn't have to be about having served a long apprenticeship and, uh, with your instrument. Mm. You could be more or less a stranger to your instrument, but if you had a lot of anger and a big idea, mm. that was enough. It was good to clean out the pretension too. From oh, that. yeah, and, and, the, and having kind of been in the tail end of that pretentious period, you know, where all the pop music sounded kind of airbrushed, 
any other interesting music was sort of English prog rock, which was hopelessly pompous and silly, but had had germs of really good ideas in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having having been at the end of that, I kind of knew what what we were all prote- protesting against. So it felt really great to be in Blam 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 and to to just have no rules. Basically, the songs didn't have to have bridges. No, songs could just be rants from go to woe. They could be one chord. You know, they could. Yeah. You know. I remember seeing the Blams on many occasions, and oh. God, sort of one of many misdemeanors. I think one of the first times I saw you, I spilt a whole big things of beer. What are they called? Jugs. The I jugs. Think, it yes. was a jug. I think I spilt the whole thing all over you. Do you recall that? I'm not surprised. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing you'd do. Yeah. Now, the Blams, energetic, creative. In that time, in the early 80s, basically, there was a special energy in, in the music. Uh, I don't think it's simply nostalgia that makes me think that way. Springbok tour helped. There was this grey, turbulent discontent and electricity in the air. Mm. The music spoke of that too, didn't it? Yeah. And just getting around. Everything was a bit on edge. Something might just be about to happen. And you didn't quite know what. Yeah, there was a kind of danger in the air. And I guess you've got the old order being overturned musically. Um, You've got all these people, all these uh, new people that have a license to stand up and tell a story. Mm. An old order being overturned politically as well. You've got the the, sort of the end of grey paternalistic entitled group of Mm. white men... You know, running the country. The last uh, of the hat wearers, as Barry Humphreys said. I like that. that That's out. good. Um, and there was a new group of, of uh, paternalistic um, <laughs> white, white men. <laughs> but at least there was a sense that things were changing and we were kind of entering the world. Uh, it was strangely exciting and, and exciting in odd ways too. We Because... We were all punk bands, you know, the the, the Screaming Mimis, Pneumatics, uh, Blam Blam Blam. We had followings, and in those followings there were quite a lot of different people who were, who were coming out to the gigs for different reasons, and mm. we, for some reason, we had a boot boy following. We didn't know where that came from. Some gigs there'd be fights between boot boys and skinheads mm. in, in the back of the audience. Sometimes we'd get into fights. There were fights. I can't remember the last time I was at a gig where there was a fight. Yeah, it was just, pretty it, normal it, in those it days. It was normal, yeah. wasn't it? What the hell was going on? Yeah, and I can't kind of, I can't remember it very well. Simon Grigg has written about that time um, in audio culture, and I read it sort of with disbelief initially, thinking hey, it didn't happen. And then I thought, actually, I think it did. Mm. You know, because he talks about me getting into fights, and like it, people who know me know that I wouldn't hurt a fly. But mm. in those days, there were, I think, somebody had attacked somebody else on stage and I went to help thinking that I'm so small that nobody would actually hit me. Right. Uh, which is a kind of um, sort of spurious notion, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'd just like to play a little bit of Call for Help. That's one of my favourites. And just listening to it today, something came to mind. Regular listeners to this program will sigh when they hear this again. God, the, the melody and the singing, it reminded me of Brian Eno. Yeah, well, I loved Brian Eno in those days. We we, we listened really widely and we, we would, uh, you know, there's this wonderful new blast of wind blowing through everything. So there was XTC and there was uh, yeah. Sex Pistols and all that. But there was also bands like the Monochrome Set mm. and what, what Eno was doing in the early stages. Yeah. And also the sense that you could you could write from the subconscious. A lot of the time we were driving to, along these really lonely roads and there's a big difference between being an urban kid in New Zealand and then ending up, you know, travelling down the country in these lonely roads. And I, I remember seeing some police lights 
off to the side of the road somewhere and then think then my, my mind sort of spinning the wheel spinning on what that story could have been that led to call for help and it scared me it scared me so much as I thought of it that I thought I have to write I have to write this song and that kind of impetus to write has been with me for the rest of my writing life every so often something comes up that I don't think oh that'll make a good song yeah that'll mm. that people will like that sometimes I think I'm scared of this I don't know what it means I'm going to write about it
but Call for Help came from something else completely different. Yeah. It's really different from other Blam stuff because Blam, mm. Blam stuff was generally a rant, you know, like a, a, either a first-person rant or a, a rant where you invent a really horrible negative character and then mm. and you speak in his voice. So that was Richard's really Richard's style, and I adopted that style, you know, mm. in the same way that. You know, you learn to speak as a child by imitating the, mm. the noises of adults, you know. Well, and speaking of that, I'd really love Gotta Be Guilty. That's very much me and Mark writing a song in the style of Richard. I think that was a, that was a really interesting experiment, that one. You're the conservative commentator or the police, and it's regarding Arthur Allen Thomas, right? Yep. Gotta Be Guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I smoke without fire. Yeah, yeah, or just, just, or just a regular guy down the pub. Yeah. Right? He's gotta be guilty. There's no point changing the subject. Fade away. 
Nice. Okay. Um, I've got to ask, there was the awful crash uh, that your band had. Yeah. You mind talking yeah. about that? It was it was quite a thing, wasn't it? It wasn't just a bang, a small nose to tail or anything. Jeez. No, it was full on. I wasn't in the van. I mean, we, 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 we'd just got to the point where we, we were a convoy band. We'd spent all our career as a band pretty much travelling around in one van. And then for this tour, we expanded a bit. We had, a, we had two vans and I was in the one following behind and we'd... We arrived and we just saw these skid marks and then and then we didn't know what had happened and we finally found out that the van in front, the main van with the PA in it and Tim and Mark and um, and Jackie Brooks had uh, and, and Tim's wife Carol and had rolled uh, um, just outside Whanganui and, uh, and then it took a while to find which hospital they'd been taken to. I'm amazed that they walked out of it actually. Everybody survived. Tim was quite seriously injured. He had uh, a lot of injuries to his, to his hip and, uh, and he lost... Um, Lost uh, a couple of fingers off his yeah. off his right off his uh, right hand. Um, took a long time for him to recover, um, and it sort of put the it sort of stopped the band in its tracks. Oh. Really, uh, uh, we just made an album. We were touring that album, um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, we really didn't know what to do at, th- at that stage. Um, we didn't know how long it would take Tim to recover. Yeah. Um, You're a musician with the famed Laura Dean Dance Company in New York as well, but we'll, we'll talk about your popular music side of things because oh, we could make it a nightly four-hour program. But <laughs> <laughs> the front lawn. We'll go from the front lawn to today. Uh, we'll just take a short break. Front lawn, wonderful outfit. Harry Sinclair and Don McGlashan. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Oh, McGlashan, the front lawn. You hooked up with Harry Sinclair. It was kind of half theatre, half music, and but neither half was diminished. I'm testing your modesty here again. It was good theatre. It was great music. Well, I always felt that I, that the the theatre side of it, I was kind of um, I was catching up, you know, because I I wasn't a trained actor, and Harry was a very good actor. And uh, but I think what we did is we kind of invented a style which was kind of deadpan, and we were limited by what I could do theatrically. I gradually got better through the six years that we worked. We'd have these sketches that we'd write in these journals and we'd get together and decide whether the sketches were going to be theatre piece or a, a, the germ of a story or a song or a film. Mm. So it was sort of like this Swiss army knife of a group that could go in any direction. And it was a really close collaboration. We, we hit each other quite hard with ideas. We criticised each other quite a lot. And those sort of things don't come along very often. No, Harry, Harry Sinclair, he's, he's, he's got that determined work ethic. Maybe it's in the genes from the juggling Sinclairs, Sinclair and Sinclair. <laughs> well, it could be from his from his father, who was yeah. New Zealand's great historian, yeah. Sir Keith Sinclair, and his brother Stephen, who's a playwright, wonderful playwright, pretty incredible family actually. That was kind of like a school of performing arts for six years, and we just worked away making these shows. Sometimes the shows would be very loose sort of excuses to put songs in and sometimes the shows would be quite a clear kind of story mm. and the songs would sort of go into that. We made some short films and around that time I think I think he realised that he was a film director, film writer and director and mm. so he's headed off to do that. He lives in Los Angeles now, has directed a number of feature films and TV stuff. He was a regular director on 90210, Beverly Hills 90210, so he's... Um, doing really well and around that time I sort of realised that I loved storytelling I loved the possibilities of standing up in front of people and just assuming a character Mm. and telling them a story and then going into a song and then coming out of the song again but what I really hankered for 
was just to put that all into a song. Yeah. Roll all of that together. Because one of the things that happened to me in New York, apart from watching Laurie Anderson and going to see Richard Hell and the Voidoids and all these great sort of different things that I was soaking up, was I met a girl who played me old Irish songs, really traditional Irish music, and somewhere that got down to my subconscious, the idea of the storytelling, the, the sense of ordinary people telling stories and also the sense of a of the song being a vessel so some of the songs with the front lawn i was kind of trying to go in that that direction and then mm. and then that's why i thought well front lawn's finished i want to start a band and i want to be the songwriter mm. so i wanted to kick i want to kick myself in the bum yeah so that i i have to write songs you've got a touch of the phillips what do you mean a touch of the Phillips? Mutt- Mutt- didn't touch have, of the Martin Phillips. Didn't have a, well, yeah, I mean, he's a perfectionist. Oh. Yeah, he's better at putting lots of different people around his ideas than I am. But yeah. Like a front lawn, I want to play a front lawn song. Okay. I mean, there, there are some beautiful, heartfelt things with big stories. I recommend you go find the front lawn stuff. It's really lovely, but one that's never been released. Which one? What, the... Everything I see tells me I'm right. I'm right. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm right. Why was that never released? Oh, that's because... Because we weren't thinking along those lines. We had this piece, which is in, in our show, a short piece called I'm Right, which is actually a bit like the Richard von Sturmer approach to songwriting. You know, I'm an asshole and I'm going to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. You know? It was these two people just sort of sounding off and we put it over a beat and then we thought, well, we'll make, it, we'll make a video of it. That'll be fun. And we put it out and they played it on Radio With Pictures. And then but nobody could go and buy the record. Well, we never thought. We never thought about that. We never thought that the video is... Nobody told us. Nobody picked us up, shook us, and told us that the video is a is a sales pitch for something that right. people can go and buy. Yeah. We didn't think that way, so we, we put out this video, and we thought, that's great. All right, the video was the end yeah, into itself. We've made this thing, and I'm glad people like it. <laughs> I'm right. I'm right. Everything around me tells me I'm right.
at those women. Look at those women. It's songbook just alone has become so loved in New Zealand. It's been your biggest success. It beats the Blams, I suppose, does it? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we, we signed to a major label. I mortgaged my house to make the first album and to, and to, to sell it. The second album we signed to uh, EMI Australia. Third album, we by that stage, we'd gone to England and we signed to Virgin UK. Mm. Those albums were sold around the world, so so if you look at the sales, yeah, it's the biggest selling record. But then yeah. the fourth album, which was after Virgin dropped us, fifth fourth Mutton Birds album, um, was actually sold more in the UK ah. than the third album. So that was kind of indicating. Um, I was going to ask if there were any interesting geographical anomalies or where you're really popular, Iceland or Slovakia. <laughs> they were really big in Slovakia. Um, no, no, um, no, Brazil, bizarrely, we get, we get royalties from Brazil and I can't imagine why. Have you been overseas and heard your music played in the background in a cafe? Yes, I have and it's very weird. It's weird and Where wonderful. were you? I heard a mutton bird song in Minneapolis ah. once in a, a like the, whatever the Minneapolis version of the warehouse is mm. and that was very very strange the mutton birds was a chance to as I said it was a chance to put a band around my ideas to make me write more and work, really be a band try to be a band try to work out what a band what a band could be like and I'd audition people I started with David Long who had who had worked on the front lawn album mm. beautiful guitarist he'd been in the six volts getting the drummer was really the, the thing because the drums are the heart of a band and i didn't really know that because i'd been the drummer in in blam 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 and mm. i sort of thought i knew what drumming was all about but a real drummer is where the band is where the band breathes we had various different drummers we could have gone in all kinds of different directions but i heard ross burge play on this band called the spines and it's just so simple and and song based and I called him up. He was living in New York. He said, what do you want? What kind of drumming do you want? And I said, well, I want what you do. Who's your favourite drummer? And he said, well, who's your favourite drummer? And I said, well, Ringo. And he said, the correct answer. <laughs> and uh, That's lovely. The most unfairly disparaged, for the, all the wrong reasons, um, drummers in the world. Yeah, it's all for The Beatles wouldn't have been the Beatles without Ringo. No. And, and, you know, for a career drummer to adopt... That as his template yeah. really meant something to me. I kind of, I, I kind of got it, and I was learning too. I was mm. learning that, that that was the right answer. You know, a, a few weeks before, I might not have got the right answer, and then we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have got Ross. The hits from the Mutton Birds, the too well known for me to simply repeat them tonight. I want you to pick one, if you can. Have to be a hit. No, just something lesser known that. Maybe a, a favourite that you go, oh, what a shame that one's not as well known. There's lots of songs that are like that. Favourite orphan child. Yeah, or the red-headed stepchild, as, yeah. as uh, Tom Waits 
says, um, there's a song on Salty that I really, really like called Too Close to the Sun, co-written with me and David Long. It just had a really good atmosphere. This is one of the, some, sometimes I'd turn up with a song that I thought, this is too much from the subconscious. It's too indulgent. Um, maybe we'll do it for a little while and then, and then we won't do it anymore. But we found that playing this one live was re- really felt good. Mm. So we'd have all these pop songs and then we'd give the audience some space with the song and it could, it could extend a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm quite proud of this one. Cool.
Muttonbirds are a touring, working band doing that sort of thing. God, it takes a lot of killer jewels and uh, emotional wear and tear as well. So yeah, I think we were we 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 got ourselves to the point where we were, I suppose, the the biggest selling band in in New Zealand. We'd got to where we wanted to get get to. We'd, the gamble had kind of paid off, mm. and um, also we opened for Peter Gabriel, and he and he came backstage and and just said, "You got to come to England. This is going to work," mm. you know. Um, and that was really it really blew me away. And Daniel Keeley, who was our manager at that stage, had a really good relationship with a guy named Steve Hedges, who was the Oasis's agent, and he used to manage Peter Gabriel. Through his efforts, we got on all these festivals in that in the summer of 95 glastonbury we opened on a um, multi-date nearly two-month tour with simple minds around europe we did the same thing with uh, chris isaac around scandinavia we, we did big big tours we did some demos for the record company they said okay stay stay make an album mm. and so we stayed yeah. so the mutton birds they ceased to exist why we were still touring getting similar size audiences yeah. but we all kind of knew that it would take a lot of work that we we could stay at that level paying our way we weren't working part-time we were living and living and working as a band i think around that time we could all could see how, how high the hill was that we had to climb and my kids were at a stage where it was it was the right time to move them home my mum got really sick so i thought well I need to be closer yeah. to home and this is a good time to move everybody. So I just sort of said, I gave everybody a year's notice. I said, let's do what we can for a year. Beginning of 99, I'm going to come and yeah. go home to New Zealand. I started concentrating more on writing film scores and yeah. trying to you know, put food on the table for the family back here. Your solo career, that's been pretty damn good as well. How many albums now since the Mutton Birds solo? It's four, uh, isn't it? Three. Three albums. This is maybe a difficult question. Do you still feel the same creative urge and creative power that you've always had? Yep, yep, no different. That thing that happened to me up the hill at the island is still, yeah. with, is still with me. Cool. I once, actually Richard, Richard von Simmel when I was in my teens because I was really down. A lot of the time uh, when you're getting up in front of people and singing, it's quite vulnerable and, and so you, you, that's why a lot of us have trouble. That's why a lot of us drink a lot and take a lot of drugs and, and I think at that stage I, I could sort of see the future stretching out ahead like that. And I remember saying to Richard, how do you know that you're an artist? What if you're wrong? You know, what if this calling is a wrong number? And he said, you know because you get sick if you don't. You get sick if you don't do it. Yep. And that's true. If, if I go for a while without writing a song, I just feel bad. I feel worse. Right now, I'm in a great space because I don't have so many overheads. Uh, kids are a bit more independent. I've put aside... A lot of other projects. I've been lucky to get you know film projects come my way over the years, and I don't do them as much as I did before. I can really work on records. I, you know, I've got a song that I'm working on right now, and I don't have to think where's the song going to go on the record because I'm sure as hell not going to write more than ten in the, ne in the next year. Um, so the song has to be good enough to go on the record. I'm, I can go now. I've got a song. I'm really enjoying writing it. It might not go on anything. Mm -hmm. I might not have to foist it on yeah. any, any public. A criminally underrated songwriter in New Zealand, Bill Doreen. You'd know Bill Doreen. Yeah, yeah. And you just said, you know, how do you know you're a songwriter? There's two things that I that came from the film about Bill Doreen that came out last year. One was during the Q&A after the film, Bill was up the front, and some sharp individual uh, just said, oh, Bill, when was your most creative period? 
no hesitation. He went 17 to 23. Next. <laughs> Bang, straight away. Because he's still writing stuff I think is as good as the day he did his greatest album. But I thought it was an amazing sort of thing of self-awareness. But also in that movie, there is that question, how do you know you're an artist? Someone asked him, if you were the only person left in the world, would you still write? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, it's not about am I good enough to be in an anthology in in the years after I'm dead. That's not for us to no. say. You know, posterity will work it out. Posterity's really good like that. Yep. You know? You never know whether you've reached your peak and you're coming down the other side or whether you, your peak is yet ahead of you or whether yeah. it's a long way in the past. You never know. It doesn't matter. No. Don McGlashan, the free flight New Zealand tour, tickets on sale from Don mcglashan.com we've got a link on the weekend variety wireless web page as well so is this going to be just you solo are you carrying a band some of it's solo and then i've got this thing that i've, I've worked out with chris o'connor who's this uh who's the drummer i've worked with for the last maybe 10 12 years yeah um we did a show in vancouver um a few months ago where he plays drums with one hand organ with the other hand and does some backing vocals and sometimes plays glockenspiel sometimes just does percussion, mm. and it just felt fantastic. I had everything I wanted. I had, uh, I had the subtlety of just a duo. Mm. Touch of the front lawns. I still play my loops. You know, I still use the loop pedals sometimes, and I play the horn. But also when you want it to be rock and roll, you've got all that power. We leave the, leave the auditorium and come back playing the building with drumsticks. You know, right. So we could do all that experimental weird stuff if we want to. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixture of solo and, and duo. And for the benefit of those that love your songbook, you're not going to ignore the hits, of course. No, uh, no, I'll go all the way through the back pages and hopefully I've got some new ones to start out as well. Good yeah. one. Don McGlashan, it's been lovely having you in. Thanks so much. For Thanks for having in. me, Graham. The Weekend Variety Wireless. Go visit the Outsiders Archive on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. More than a hundred there, I think, or at least there should be. One, or well, a few have missed, muster. Uh, one of them, the Worthington scandal, which we'll be covering after news, sport and weather at the top of the hour. Very good evening. It's 11 o'clock.